Well, the Lord sat down himself and taught the crowd, so this is a, uh, a privilege to be back with you on a Lord's Day. Uh, so thankful for the church family, for uh, loving uh, our family, caring for us, uh, providing food during this uh, time of trial for me personally. Um, for those of you that are unaware, I tore my Achilles tendon a few weeks back and had surgery. But man, I am just so thrilled that we have uh, men who are capable to open up the Word of God and uh, thankful for Pastor Nick and Brother Jordan who preached last Sunday. And now I'm excited. I've been itching to get back in the pulpit. And so here we are. Well, I started thumbing through a book by Leslie B. Flynn. He wrote a book called Great Church Fights, What the Bible Says About Controversy and how to resolve it. Flynn tells of uh, two unmarried sisters who live together, but because of an unresolved disagreement over an insignificant issue, they just stopped speaking to one another. Since they were either unable or unwilling to move on out of their small house, they continued to use the same rooms. They ate at the same table, they used the same appliances, they slept in the same room, but they did all of that without speaking one word to each other. So time goes on. They continue not to speak. They have their two halves divided, separate doorways, as well as a fireplace. Everything just chalked right down the middle. You stay there, I'll stay here. And as they would come and go, cook and eat and sew and read, they would do that with ever stepping over their sister's territory. Through the black of night, each could hear the other deeply breathing, but because both were unwilling to take that first step towards reconciliation, to humble themselves, to forgive and to forget the silly offense, they coexisted for years in a very awkward and painful silence. The church is not supposed to be ununified. But the danger is, the temptation is, that in the church, we have relationships like that. And that's poisonous, and it's also Satan's desire to destroy our witness and our effectiveness. Tom Rayner, you might be familiar with that name on his Twitter account, he posted something. It was just an innocuous survey, but it eventually blew up. And so people, pastors, churches, got on his Twitter feed, and they started to include some of the things that their church members have been through. Drama, fights, schisms. There was 25 of the top ones, and I think you can imagine what kind of stuff people are arguing over, whether it's the color of the carpet or the paint on the walls. But here's just a few of those of the top 25. There was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. There was a fight over building a children's playground or using that area for a cemetery. There was a deacon that accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and he decided to settle it outside in the parking lot. A 45 minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Are we purchasing white, black, or brown? Two drawers, three drawers, or four drawers? A fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer? A dispute over changing the elements of the Lord's Supper from grape juice to cran grape and from gluten to gluten-free. 
One church reported fights over the type of coffee as one really wanted to move away from Folgers to some Starbucks. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs, because you can't have deviled eggs in church. <laughs> and a disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of saying pot blessing. We hear those things and we think, that's silly, that, that cannot be true, and yet it is. And churches actually split as a result of that kind of petty stuff all the time. And when we have those kind of distractions in the church, then our calling, our commission to make Christ known to the nations is disrupted. When there's disunity and disharmony in the church, Ultimately, Christ is dishonored, our witness disregarded, because who wants to join a church that's going to fight over petty stuff like that? Someone well said, when you destroy unity in the church, what you do is you're ripping the heart out of the body of Christ. As you think back with me just a few weeks ago, we wanted to spend some time thinking about the church at Philippi. They are truly a model church, but they had a major problem. The church of Philippi is not like the church at Corinth. Corinth had all kinds of issues, theological issues, doctrinal issues. The church at Philippi is not like that, but there was a serious sin threatening their unity, their spiritual growth, and their witness, and that threat was division in the body, the deadly disease of disunity, and the root of all that was pride. It was a proud heart. And as you read the letter of Philippians, what you begin to catch wind of is this idea of pride, selfishness, envy, self-serving, even rivalry, all of that intruding on the gospel fellowship that this church enjoyed. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul even calls out two ladies by name. It would be like saying Jess and Sarah or Michael and Laura. Imagine hearing your name mentioned by the Apostle Paul forever written down for all churches to see that there was a feud going on. But he says, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And then he calls for the church to make sure that they stay unified. Well, the question we want to look at this morning is, how do we overcome disunity? How do we prevent disunity from happening here in our fellowship? The answer is very simple. The answer is that we need to have a certain kind of mentality. It is a Christ-minded humility. And that's what the beginning of chapter 2 is all about. So, again, if you think back, we talked about the motivation for our unity. You remember we said we don't want to be in a rush to get to the do section because our tendency is to just figure out what are we supposed to do. To tell me what I need to do, what steps do I need to follow, what's the plan, and then show me a model for that, and then just let me go on my way. But we didn't want to jump right into that. We took our time, we looked at verse 1, and we considered, before everything else, the motivation for unity. So before you even get to the mandate, and before you get to the marks of unity, and before you get to the means of producing that unity, we needed to focus on the motivation. What is the motivation for our unity? It's this, that we are the recipients of God's good grace. We have all the encouragement that comes from Christ. We have God's love. We have fellowship of the Spirit. That is the great common denominator and the reason why we can maintain our unity in the church. 
Because each of us, we have been recipients of God's good grace. He has been so kind to us. But the danger, I think, for all of us is to overlook the experiences because we don't want to be experiential people when it comes to the Bible. But in fact, we need to dig deep into the experience of our own salvation and the gospel transformation in our heart before we get to the exhortations and we get to the examples to follow. But it's our experience in verse 1 that motivates, that propels our unity. So that's what we did last time. We meditated on those four powerful motivations of why we should strive together and stand together for unity. And now, this morning, we turn our attention to what are we supposed to do. And here's our outline if you're taking notes. We're going to look at the mandate for unity. We see that at the beginning of verse 2. Then we're going to look at the marks of unity in the rest of verse 2. And then we're going to focus in on the means of unity in verses 3 and 4. The mandate, the marks, the means, all of unity. And if you're taking notes, you want to jot this down. Here's our main idea. The church cultivates biblical unity through Christ-minded humility, self-forgetfulness, and others' attentiveness. Let me say that again. How do we accomplish this unity? How do we preserve and maintain this unity? The church cultivates biblical unity through Christ-minded humility, self-forgetfulness, and others' attentiveness. And every, every relationship, the relationship at home between husband and wife, between parent and child, between friend, between coworker, family members, Every single relationship is dependent on humility and self-forgetfulness if that relationship is to thrive. Or you can say it negatively. We can say if you don't want to have great relationships, if you want to ruin your relationships with people, then you know what you can do? Today, on the way home, just be as proud and as selfish and as self-centered as possible. And if that is characteristic of your lifestyle and your relationships, you're not going to have great relationships. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he said, look, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. And we're so proud, we don't even know how proud we are. So let's look to Paul now as he gives us instruction how to fight against this pride, how to remain unified, how to regard others as more important than ourselves. Open up your Bibles there if they're not open to Philippians. And we'll go back to verse 27. Here's God's word to us. Paul writes this, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. 
Not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Would you join me just one more time as we pray and ask the Lord to unfold this for us? Oh, Father, we are so dependent on your spirit to lead us into truth. I pray that you would help me to step aside and allow the word of God to do what the word of God does. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. I pray that your word would not come back void, but it would encourage and sharpen and convict and bring healing and comfort, and especially this morning, Lord, to produce, maintain, and cultivate this unity that Paul speaks of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, I love chapter 2 of Philippians. It's probably one of my favorite chapters. And one of the reasons why chapter 2 is so great is because it's just so gospel-saturated. The gospel is preeminent in Paul's mind. And we see that all throughout the book of Philippians. But Paul understands that this danger is legitimate. And so he wants to pastor them. He doesn't just give them some superficial advice so they can go fix things. He doesn't come hard with a rebuke and tell them to get with the program. No, he provides that motivation. That's the trueness, the statements that are true. And now he tells us what to do. Look again at verse 1, just by way of reminder. We have encouragement in Christ. We have his endearment. We're loved by God. We are endowed by the Holy Spirit, and we have his empathy. We have his affection and compassion. But now we're moving from the what is true to what do we do. And then verses 3 and 4 will tell us how we're to do it. So let's look at what Paul is calling the Philippians and calling us here at Grace Church Monterey to do. In verse 2, point number 1, the mandate. It's real simple. Be unified. That's Paul's main idea. Be unified. Fulfill my joy that you think the same way, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. When Paul says here, fulfill my joy, it's very interesting that this opening imperative is actually the only imperative in the first four verses. This is the imperative. Fulfill my joy. That's a command. And it's the focal point. Everything following that exhortation elaborates on how that is maintained. But I want you to notice something here. Because Paul attaches his joy to their unity. Now your translation might say, complete my joy. That Greek verb, plerao, it has the idea of filling it up to the fullest measure. And you say, well, what's the problem here? Is Paul lacking joy and he's just looking to this church to help have some joy? Look, Paul was overjoyed by the Philippian church. He was so thrilled and so grateful for their love, for their prayers, for their consideration of him while he was in jail, for their contributions for his ministry. Paul loved this church and he was full of joy. But the interesting thing is, this is the capstone for Paul's ministry to this particular church. Paul brought them the gospel preached the gospel. They believed the gospel. People got baptized by the gospel. And not only that, they just didn't get baptized and like, sweet, I'm going to heaven. They started proclaiming the gospel. But Paul says now, all that is great. That is a miracle of grace. But yet something needs to be improved. Something needs to be refined. It is the striving together, the continual standing together in gospel unity. You see, the gospel should never stop short of the unity that it's supposed to produce. 
That is so important for us because now we look at churches and denominations and church splits and church schisms and we say, is the church united? The church needs to be united. But even though Paul is thankful for this church and all the ways that they're excelling, he wants more. He wants more. So he says, fulfill my joy. He says, look, you, always, you, you bring me so much joy, and I love that, but I want to be overflowing with joy. So Paul, how, how do we help your joy overflow? All the way up to the brim and overflowing, how do we do that? And Paul says, I want you to think the same way. And that's what he says, beginning in verse 2. After he says, fulfill my joy, make my joy complete, fill it to the full, he begins to lay out the four marks of Christian unity. And the first one there is thinking the same way. Now, your translation might say something like being of the same mind. The idea is to be like-minded. There is, listen church, there is no biblical unity unless we all have the same mind. Like-minded, the verb, like-minded, for neo, it means to be united in thought, in disposition, united in our attitude. And it's in the present tense, which means that this is something as believers, we are to continually do together, be thinking the same way. And when you think about this concept of unity, Paul had this always on the forefront of his mind. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I just want to show you a few places where Paul highlights this desire for the church's unity. Romans chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 16. There in Romans 12, 16, he exhorts the saints in Rome by saying this. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And do not be wise in your own estimations. Turn on over to chapter 15. As he's praying now for their unity, he says, Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be, again, of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. Let's leave Romans and flip over to the next book, 1 Corinthians, and turn on over to chapter 1. Here Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgments. The church at Corinth had a real problem with that. And so that's why Paul closes 1 Corinthians. If you look on over to chapter 13 and verse 11, Paul says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. And what does he say? Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And interestingly, when we look at this word, the majority of times that Paul uses it is actually in the book of Philippians. So this is the forefront of Paul's mind. Be like-minded. Be same-minded. Think the same way. But we got to get something clear. Paul doesn't mean that we all need to see eye-to-eye -eye on everything exactly. Because we all know that the Lakers are much better than the Golden State Warriors. We can argue about that stuff. But what about in the church? Well, when's Christ returning? Some hold the 
pre-mill, some hold the ah-mill, some hold the post-mill, some don't know what in the world I'm talking about, some hold the, the pan-mill, things will just pan out eventually. Can we have unity despite different views about stuff that is difficult to understand? Absolutely. We're supposed to. We can't allow secondary and tertiary things to divide us as a church. This is not devaluing truth. We're not compromising truth for the sake of unity. So you say, well, Dom, okay, well, what does the same mindness refer to? Well, look down at verse 5 in Philippians 2. Paul says this, Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's the exact same word. What Paul says is, look, you want unity? Then think like Jesus. And you say, well, how did Jesus think? Well, obviously he thought perfectly. And everything Jesus thought was amazing and holy. But specifically, Jesus' thought patterns, they produced a certain kind of lifestyle. Jesus came here to earth on a mission, and nothing thwarted that mission. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to lay down his life for the beloved. He came to sacrifice. He came to put others before himself. That is the kind of mentality that we need to have. And just by way of application, when we think about this, look, if, if you want to have that kind of Christ-mindedness, you have to know Christ, which means you have to be in your Bible. This is why we do Bible studies and grace groups, and there's opportunities for discipleship for you to grow in the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? And then he gives this amazing statement. He says, But we have the mind of Christ. Christian, you have the mind of Christ, which means that you have been given the ability, the capacity, the power, the strength, the motivation, the encouragement to think like Jesus. Think like Christ. Be like-minded. Be unified. So Paul says, we need to think the same way. We need to have the same mind, same disposition of Christ, a mind of humility, a mind that's willing to sacrifice for the good of others. Our unity is thoughtful. It is theological. But our unity is also displayed in giving affection. And that's what Paul says next. Unity comes... When we maintain the same love, look there at the text. Notice Paul is not saying anything that you have not already received. So he, he can go back to verse 1 and say, is there any consolation of love? Have you been loved by God? And the answer to that, of course, is yes, I have. God has loved me well. He's loved me perfectly. Then the logical conclusion is if you have been loved by God, if God has demonstrated his love for you, if Christ has laid down his life for you out of a demonstration of love, shouldn't you, Christian, follower of Jesus, in response, reciprocate that love back to God and back to others? That's the thought here. And he uses a very familiar word that you know. It's agape, self-giving love. It's the love that's defined by God himself. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he what? First loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. You know, some have said there are two ways of being united. One is you could be frozen together. The other 
is by being melted together. And what Christians need is to be melted, united together by Christ's hot, passionate love. This agape love is not the cheap stuff. I was reading uh, this morning the lyrics to What is Love to My Wife this morning. I was actually singing it, which sounded bad. There is no substance to that song. And you think of all these songs that come out on the radio talking about love, trying to teach about love. They have no idea. The world has no idea. Love for the world is conditional love. I will love you. I will serve you. I will do for you, but you better do it back to me. You better reciprocate that love because if you don't, I'll only do it for so long and then I won't do it anymore. Or love the way the world sees it is lustful and it wants what you have to gratify me. But in contrast, agape love says, look, I'm prepared to lay my life down for you, no matter what, no matter how long, because I want to love you like Christ has loved me. And his love is powerful and passionate and consistent, and it's eternal. That is agape love. It is the manifestation of the act of one's will that desires the highest good of another, even at great personal cost. Agape, it gives, it gives, it gives. It's relentless. It's unselfish. Agape love is the kind of love where you can get slapped in the face and spit upon and mocked and hear the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is amazing love. It's the kind of love that Paul prayed that would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment in chapter 1 and verse 9. Church, listen, when we maintain our unity, when all of us have the same love for one another, we speak volumes of the gospel and of how precious Christ is. And listen, all of us, all of us have to be in on this. We can't have a few people loving everyone or everyone only loving a few people. All of us need to have this passionate love for one another. But you won't be able to do that if you show partiality. You won't be able to do that if you like clicks and you play favorites. You won't be able to do that if you're unwilling to meet people. Remember, Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, look, some say you're of Paul, some say you're of Apollos, some say you're Cephas, and some say you're of Christ. And it was that kind of mentality that divided the church. And listen, we just can't fall into that trap. We can't segregate. We can't be partial. We have to practice the one another's with every single one of our members. How beautiful, church, is it when we all love each other passionately and generously? You say, well, I don't know that I can do that because so-and-so gets on my nerves. I just can't stand to be around him or her. I can't even stand, like, the sound of their voice. I don't like the way they smell. I don't like the way that they look. I don't like the way that they treated me. I don't like what they did to me 10 years ago. There's all kinds of reasons to say I am unwilling to engage with a certain person. But listen, you don't have to like someone in order to agape love them. Do you realize that? The Bible doesn't tell you you got to like everybody. The Bible says you have to love them. C.S. Lewis, he provides this helpful distinction in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, love as distinct 
as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habits, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at the moments when they do not like each other as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. That's a great quote. How many times do you guys do something you just get frustrated with yourself? That was boneheaded. That was dumb. Why did I do that? And in that moment, you really don't like yourself, but you're always wanting the best for yourself. You need to flip that around. Someone might be challenging. Someone might be difficult. It might be your spouse. It might be your kids. It might be your parents. It doesn't matter. You don't have to like them in that moment or like what they did, but the Bible's call for all of us is to love them with agape love. Again, the motivation, have you, you, have you been loved by God? Because do you think that you're likable all the time? Oh, I'm just perfect. I never get anyone, anyone upset. All the, the things that you do, God has never, ever once stopped loving you. And it's that kind of love that he wants us to have for one another, an unbiased, unconditional, generous, tangible kind of love. So Paul says, we're to think the same, we're to love the same, and now he gives this all-inclusive statement. Look there at the text. He says, being united in spirit. He's already touched on the head, are thinking the same way. And he's just elaborated on the heart that we are to have the same love for one another, but now he addresses everything kind of comprehensively. He says, being united in the spirit. Again, look back at verse one. He says, is there any fellowship of the spirit? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, the spirit of God has created this fellowship. The spirit of God indwells the believer. The spirit of God, he encourages, he comforts, he teaches, all of that is true. Well, if that's the case then, Christian, can you not have fellowship with one another? Can you not be united in spirit with one another? That word only occurs here in the New Testament. So like Paul almost made this up. It's basically same souled. Uh, how many of you guys watched the Olympics? I was so fascinated by the Chinese divers that looked exactly like twins. And they go and they do all these like little flips and every single movement in super slow motion is just synchronized. And they go down into the water and the same kind of splash comes up and they come out and they both look the same. It's like, whoa, they're, they're like cloning people over there. And everything is just perfect. But that is not unity. That was in unison, but there's a difference between unity and unison. God is not calling us to put on our Star Trek outfits and all look the same. No, no, it's something much more impactful, profound, than just looking the same, talking the same. Piper says this in his book, Desiring God. He says, there is a different kind of unity enjoyed by the joining of diverse counterparts than is enjoyed by joining two things just alike. When we all sing the same melody line, it's called unison, which means one sound. But when we unite diverse lines of soprano and alto and tenor and bass, then we call it harmony. And everyone who has an ear to hear knows that something deeper in us is touched by great harmony 
than by mere unison. Look, we're all different. We all have different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ages, male and female, only two. But we're all different. But we come together because we're united by the spirits. And listen, that is what marked the early church. A lot of people say, hey, let's go back to the early church. They were doing all these miracles and, and all this stuff. And yeah, you know what else they were doing? They were unified. They were gathering every Sunday to sit under the preaching of the word. In Acts 4.32, it says this, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them all. They're one-minded, one heart, one soul. Thousands of new believers coming into the church from all kinds of different backgrounds, and they were one. Nick mentioned we're bringing on, uh, I think it's 18 new members with us next Sunday, and we give the Lord thanks for that. But everyone coming on is different, and I love it. But everyone who's coming on has the same mind, the same heart, united by the same spirit. Otherwise, we would not allow you to become members of our church. Membership at a church means that Christ has transformed our lives and united us together by the spirits. We are same souled, every soul knit together, and that is the kind of unity that Paul is calling them to. Not an external unity, you could be together physically, but so apart, so apart spiritually. And this often happens, as you know, sports teams, inside homes. You can also live under the same roof and not be same soul, but not so with the church. True unity is not organizational. It's not outward. It is a matter of oneness. And just to remind you that we don't create it, it's already been established. We don't have to manufacture unity. It has already been done for us. Our responsibility is to maintain the unity that the Spirit has already established. So our unity, it's thoughtful, it's intentional. We're guarding what has already been accomplished by the Spirit of God. You think about how sweet it is because both you and I, we have been immersed in the Spirit. We've been gifted by the Spirit. We want the fruit of the Spirit to pervade our life. We want to be spirit-controlled people. That is what unites us and blesses our fellowship. One body. Now, Christian unity that is wrought by the Spirit of God who brings to us the understanding and the embracing of the gospel of Christ, that is the kind of unity that reaches the mind. We adopt the same attitude and disposition. It reaches down into the heart so that we love one another as God has loved us. And this unity reaches down to the depths of our very soul. Look, Christian unity causes our minds to think the same thing. It causes our hearts to pulsate the same way. And it binds our souls together. Now, Paul gives a fourth and final mark of unity, which is this, thinking on one purpose. Look there at the text. The Greek word here uses the same word in verse 2. This is one thing. He emphasizes this. This is our main goal. This is the intent. We're intent on one purpose. We have a mission statement that we state every single Sunday. Why do we do that? Because that is what we're here for. That's what we live for. So we get up in the morning and we're passionate about. Paul is calling them to press on toward this one singular goal. They're to pursue this together, to be intentional, to, to have some sort of intensity as they pursue this together. And you say, well, what is the one purpose? 
How do you shrink it down just to one thing? Well, look back in chapter 1 and verse 27. I think Paul says that there. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Look, our one purpose, church, is to live for the glory of God and to make the gospel known. That is why God has saved you, to glorify him. We magnify Jesus Christ. We minister to one another, the church, and we multiply his disciples. How do we do that? It's all centered on the gospel. That is why we're alive. And this is what marked Paul's life. Paul said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ and him crucified. It is the message. It is the good news. It's the good news that saved all those Praetorian guards. I've been at home with my foot up and feeling just bad. I just, just bad. I miss walking. You know what it's like to walk? It's pretty cool. I don't know. I can't, I can't do that though. But as I'm sitting in my room and I'm just bummed out, thinking of Paul in prison. And Paul is just preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved. It's not just the Praetorian guards, but it's people in Caesar's household, and he's emboldening people to preach the gospel more. Paul's life was all about the gospel. But, you know, the interesting thing is that he wasn't effective because of how gifted and how talented he was. He was effective because he was faithful. And he was obedient. And he had a heart for the lost. There's this story that you may have heard of, but it was an African tribe. And they lost a little child who had wandered into the tall, wandered into the tall grass. And the entire village, they searched all day, but they couldn't find the child anywhere. And someone said, you know what? We should, we should hold hands and then we should walk together. And they did, and they found the child, but sadly, it was too late. And so the mom of the dead child said, if we had only held our hands sooner, he would still be alive. When we are detached, when there is division, when we're not working together, pursuing the same goals, pursuing the lost, souls are at stake. So what Paul is saying here is, look, we have to think the same. We have to, to feel the same, love the same. We're, we're united by one spirit, but we have to have the same goal to make much of Christ while we are alive. We have no idea how much time we have on this earth. No idea how much time we can speak or move or function. All it takes is a heart attack, a stroke, an injury, and that's it. So while you have breath, and while you have life, will you be all about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? Listen, nothing will knit our hearts together and keep them bound to one another more than the gospel. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of our unity, we link arms, we stand together, we strive together after this one purpose, which is to make much of Christ. If we're to be unified church, we must live with this one purpose. Don't depend on just the pastors to do it. Don't depend on just the deacons to do it. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
then join heart-to-heart, head-to-head, plan, mission, purpose to fulfill our great commission. Look, so the marks of unity for the Christian, same-mindedness, same love, same soul, same goal. Very easy, all verse two. So the question to you is, how are we doing as a church? Are we unified? Are you harboring bitterness, jealousy? Is there envy, resentment? Is there something going on in the depths of your heart that is preventing us from being unified as a church? We're gonna take communion in just a bit. Nick's gonna come up here and lead us. My suggestion to you is that you not partake of communion if you got some lingering sin that you gotta get rid of. You need to confess that, you need to go to that person, you need to make it right. William Hendrickson said this, the reason why there's so much strife in this world between individuals, families, social or political groups, whether small or large, is that the contending parties, through the fault of either or both, they have not found each other at Calvary. There's always going to be disunity and disharmony in the church if we don't join hands and kneel together before the cross. If we try to ground our unity in other things, we might have some success for a while. But look, we're not unified because we're for vaccines or not vaccines. We're not unified because we're for masks or not masks. We're not unified because we're Republicans or Democrats. We're not unified because of Fox News or CNN. We're not unified because of those things. We're unified because we have been transformed by a powerful gospel. We're unified because both you and I, we were pitifully lost in our sins, rebels, rebellious against the holy God. We didn't want to bow the knee. We wanted to live for self. We wanted to satisfy self. And yet God in his great and abundant mercy extended his scepter of love to you. And he sent us a son. And in the fullness of time, Christ came, lived the perfect life that you cannot live. He died a death that you deserved. And he did that because he loves you. And he did that because he wants us to be unified. Jesus himself prayed that very thing. He says, I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. All other attempts to maintain unity are going to fall flat on their face. The thing that unifies us is the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, it's the superglue that binds us together. The only thing that guarantees our unity is an unwavering commitment and the celebration of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and on my behalf. And then you say, well, how do we live out the gospel? Look at verse 3. He says, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And if you want to know what that means, come back next week. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so thankful for uh, our brief time together this morning. Thankful for the power of your word, the truth of your word, the clarity of your word. Thankful, God, for the Spirit's work in the Word. Lord, maybe you've exposed some things in our own hearts. Maybe, Lord, we've been reluctant to reach out, reluctant to speak to people, 
reluctant to serve others because quite frankly, Lord, we're just too consumed with ourselves. Too often, Lord, pride permeates our hearts and our minds. And yet, Lord, if we understood, if we had the proper perspective, a biblical perspective, a Christ-minded perspective, we'd understand that as we serve one another, as we lay down our lives for others, we're in fact loving ourselves. Oh God, we have been shown so much grace and so much mercy, so much patience. And because we have experienced encouragement in Christ and the love of Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit, I pray, Lord, in turn, that we would reciprocate all those things to one another. Please, God, please keep Grace Church Monterey Bay unified. Help us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Help us to bear with one another, to be patient with one another for the sake of our unity, for the sake of the message, and for the sake of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.